0: Welcome to God in the Ordinary, a bi-monthly podcast featuring special guests talking about how they reveal God during the ordinary rhythm of their daily life. Presented by author and speaker Sharon Tedford.
1: My guest today is an executive coach, facilitator and trainer, as well as an award-winning author and marriage mentor. She's helped clients across the globe achieve success in becoming the leader others desire to work with and for. My guest, author, speaker and executive coach, Deb D'Armond. Diamond, it's great to have you here with us on God in the Ordinary. How are you today? I'm well, Sharon. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here today. Would you just tell us where you are? Because we have people sharing with us from all over the world.
0: Well, I'm in the Lone Star State of Texas, uh, just outside of the Dallas-Fort Worth area.
1: Great. Thank you for joining us. It's not that far from where I am because although I have this English accent, I also live in the Dallas area. Deb, we're just going to ask you to share with us your thoughts on
0: Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them for I, the Lord, love justice. That first line for me is my favorite of the verse. New Year's Eve 2007 is the first time I recall ever having read this verse. It's the day my first grandson came into the world and changed my life forever. I was present at his birth. It was one of the most traumatic and triumphant moments of my life. A big boy at eight pounds, he emerged from the womb, floppy, blue, and he was not breathing. I recall the moments as my son and I watched them work on him, and we petitioned the Lord to touch our boy. It was just a few moments, but seemed an eternity before that first whimper, then followed by a loud wail that announced his arrival, God's justice and faithfulness on display. My grandson's name? Justice. My heart sang when I learned the name selected for him. Like God, I love justice. It's imprinted on my heart. Justice is defined as a concern for peace and genuine respect for people, fairness, equity, conformity to truth, fact, or reason. Justice requires us to treat others in a way that doesn't minimize, ostracize, or marginalize them. No wonder God loves justice. Even as a child, I was often drawn to those who were left out, who were teased or tormented because they were different. It hurt my heart. And I often found myself squarely planted between those who were singled out for mistreatment and those whose words assaulted them. I was warned by teachers, if it's not your business, Debbie Graham, don't make it your business. But my parents affirmed my heart's call and my willingness to take action. As an adult, I continue to find myself encouraging others to speak up even if your voice shakes. Many have no experience and many have tried and failed. But when their I can't becomes their belief, I encourage them, in him, you can. I remind them God's always faithful, always present, and they are never alone. And then we work together to build their courage and their skill to find their voice, to speak up for fairness and truth, and to speak out against injustice for themselves, for loved ones, and on behalf of strangers, because God loves justice.
1: Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, Deb. I'd like to ask you first of all, you say while you were sharing your ideas about Isaiah 61 verse eight, that you like to encourage people to find their voice. That's a really great thing to be able to do. Could you um, tell us how you've been able to do that, particularly in a business setting?
0: Helping people find their voice is a tricky issue. Some people have way more voice than is beneficial to them because they're not using it well and others have become uncomfortable speaking the truth. Uh, As a business coach, Sharon, I'm often retained to help an employee perform at higher levels. And that could be things like communicating more effectively. So certainly, the willingness to speak up, share what you know, ask questions to inform yourself of the things you don't know, and to interact with people in a positive way in the workplace are very important. But there are also other skills like strategic planning or organizational skills. But I'll tell you that most often when I'm invited into a business, because I've been a consultant for almost 24 years, to coach high-level folks, it's neither of those things. It's about building healthier and more productive relationships on the job. And often they've picked up habits along the way, and they've climbed the ladder to the point where they don't really think that they are held responsible for that any longer. (laughs) That is true. That is true. Um,
1: So could you tell us particularly, when you are coaching a business client, how do you express your Christian faith in the way that you lead and encourage them?
0: Well, it's interesting because so many of the principles that are biblical, that are scriptural, find their way to my speech. And on occasion, I'll have a client that recognizes them and says, ah, you're a believer. And I hadn't had to say it for them. Because I'm Working in not in a Christian environment the majority of the time, unless I'm asked, I typically don't talk about my faith. But I'll tell you that more times than not, whether I've planned it or not, God brings it forward. I've been surprised at how often some of these clients have a background. Maybe they were taken to Sunday school or went to vacation Bible school. And many of the things that they learned as children resonate during that process. You know, one of the things that God asks us to do is to treat people with respect and to be honest. And if you've been very successful in business, you may have achieved some of that by withholding both of those things. (laughs) And truth can be tough for people, but truth always aligns us with justice. And so for me, it's a really important piece to discuss with them.
1: Yeah. Do you have any examples of particularly people who you've seen not only see your Christian faith,
0: but then choose to connect with you on a faith base? I do. I worked with a a gentleman uh, who was a a very high level. He was the CMO, the chief marketing officer for a large drugstore chain. And he was very good at what he did but he was impatient and short-tempered with people. He was often very demanding of people. And he struggled in his relationships. And when that company was purchased by another and there was a merger, he was given some terms in um, no sort of comfortable language that this had to change because the culture of the new company absolutely would not accept that. And so part of the process that I used is something that um, is helpful in me identifying patterns in people's learning and their lives. And I ask them over the course of two, usually phone sessions, to tell me about the very first things that they remember as children. Who, who were the important people in their lives? What messages did they receive? What was important to them? And what struggles did they have? And for this particular gentleman, he struggled with his dad frequently. He was the youngest of three boys. And he was sort of the carefree kid, didn't always pay very close attention in school, although he was very smart. And his father decided when he was relatively young that you'll never amount to anything. You're just a a talking mouth who says very little of value, and I'm not paying for college for you. And my client was furious about that and was absolutely determined to prove his father wrong. And Sharon, he did. He, he went to pharmacology school, which is, uh, I think, six years, and did very, very well and advanced quickly. But he was still struggling. And one of his greatest challenges was that anytime anyone called something into question or criticized him, he would just blow up. And we were able to relate that back to um, his upbringing. And I remember saying to him, hey, this guy's not your dad. The amazing thing is that we were able to identify patterns in his life where his parents would take him to church, but not stay with him there. They took all three boys to church and dropped them off. And he remembered some of the things that he had learned. And as we spoke and things I said aligned with that without delivering a Bible study, he began to recall some of his faith and talked about how much he missed that sort of, I think he called it... His, his north star, he said, it's what kept me from getting into drugs and other things when my other friends didn't. And I said, and it will work in your behalf in this situation too. I will tell you that that engagement for coaching lasted for about eight months. It was 10 years ago. And Sharon, we're still in touch. He'll call me or ask me to pray through an email about something that's going on in his career or his family. And I lived that eight months with him as he went through a very unpleasant divorce. His wife had had an affair. And he told me two years later that he knew that I was a person who would first pray for him and second, I would encourage him to to walk with the Lord. That's probably one of the standouts for me. That's a
1: helpful story because it helps us realize that you can just be who you are in Christ in your work in your day job, whatever that is, in your ordinary rhythms of life. And as long as we are being who we are meant to be in Christ, other people will see Jesus in us without us necessarily having to say, you need to read a Bible, you need to pray. You just live your life, right? That was good. Right. That's helpful. Right. You know, you said that um, the patterns in people's learning and their lives is something that a place where you start with people. Um, Do you have another example of that? Before we came on air, you were telling me about another story. Is there another one?
0: Yes. Um, I worked with a gentleman that we'll call Mitch, and Mitch was very, very capable, again, at his job. He had risen through an organization over the years And he was one of those people, you know how they say he knows where all the bodies are buried? Well, that was kind of Mitch. Um, And he may have helped some of those bodies find the grave, I'm not really sure. But he was um, difficult, he was obstinate, he was rude to people. And yet he felt perfectly comfortable with that approach because he knew that he felt he was er irreplaceable. And so did his manager. But he said, we are at the point. We're we're concerned that there will be a lawsuit at some point, and we simply can no longer abide this. And as we began to work together, and he was not happy about having to work with me, he felt like there was nothing wrong with him and people could take it or leave it. And I remember telling him the truth and saying, well, they voted, they're ready to leave it. So (laughs) tell me what you'd like to do and how you'd like to move forward. And so he grudgingly agreed to go through the process with me. And again, in part of that early discovery, um, and also a couple of conversations with clients, uh, his colleagues rather, I learned that he was um, Jewish. My father was Jewish. He was not a religious Jew, but he was culturally Jewish and proud to be. And Mitch had told me early on that he did not work past 10 a.m. on Friday mornings because he had to be ready to leave for temple for Shabbat services. And I said, so it sounds like your faith is very important to you. Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely part of me, big part of me. And I remember after one particularly challenging conversation that had ended in an argument with a colleague and another one in tears, I said to him, Mitch, are there many Jewish employees in your company? No, absolutely not. He said, there are almost none. And truthfully, Sharon, I don't know that Jewish folks have found much of a footing in the state of Texas. I have not ever seen a synagogue in the area where I live. And so he was kind of set apart there. But as we began to talk about what had happened in that meeting, and he was certain that he was in the right and that what he said was true, even if it wasn't just because it was done harshly and with kind of a threatening tone, I said, so do you think you might be the only Jewish person that the folks in this company have ever met. He said, I wouldn't be at all surprised. And I said to him, so if they judged your God, if they judged Jehovah by your kindness and by your behavior, what would they think of your God, Mitch? And he hung up on me, Sharon. It was the (laughs) only time I've ever had a client hang up on me in quite that way. Ouch. But I was okay with that because it meant I had finally found a way in to something that was genuinely heartfelt and important to him, and I had challenged him on it. And he wasn't gonna have that. He called me the next day, I think, or probably the following Monday, and he said, I hated what you said to me, but I cannot deny that there's probably some truth in it, so tell me, how do I fix this? And it was, again, a moment that it would have been easy for me to withhold the truth But I knew that the truth always aligns us again with right behaviors and right thinking. Tell the truth, the word says, speak the truth in love. Well, I wasn't in love with Mitch. I'm not even (laughs) sure on most days I liked him, to be honest. But do you know, we finished out that, we finished out that eight month engagement and his boss called me at one point and said, I'm seeing real progress. I'm seeing him more open to others' ideas. I see him being less, sharp with people and less rude to people. And he said, I'm hopeful at this point for the first time in all of the years that he and I had worked together. And when we were done, Mitch wrote me a very nice email and said, thank you for helping me understand exactly what my behavior did to other people on behalf of my God. And so they call me the miracle worker in that company. And I'm praying that they don't have any more clients like Mitch. (laughs) It was the longest (laughs) eight months of my life, Sharon. But you know, the truth will set us free. That's what the word says. And I don't know that he felt free because I think a lot of it was very difficult for him to adapt to a different approach. But I'll tell you that I spoke to him two years after that engagement ended and the reports were good. And he said, I finally feel like I found my footing and I want to be a person that people are even comfortable asking me about my faith. But he said, people just used to avoid me. He said, I missed a great opportunity. You've obviously had to deliver
1: some very difficult messages to clients over the years. How would you say that is a way to find and draw people towards justice? Because it's very
0: difficult to wiggle off the hook of truth. I only know, Sharon, what they tell me. And we also do Um, what's called a 360-degree evaluation, people who work at his level, people who work above him, and those who work for him. And I don't do them with a check the numbers. I do it with a phone call. So when they say he's difficult, I, I will say, can you give me an example of when you've encountered him as being difficult? And when he reads that information, because then I transcribe it, there's no way to wiggle off that stick. He recognizes himself, and that's a huge part of it, we don't fix what we don't acknowledge. We don't address our shortcomings unless someone is able to help us see them and understand the impact. I think lots of people, just like Mitch, take the, paint. Hey, this is who I am. This is how God made me. No, no, no. The first one might be right, but the second one is so wrong. And once they've recognized it and had to face that in the mirror, then the truth goes down much more easily. And most often, not always, they're anxious to know, how do I fix this? How do I undo what I've done? Mitch lost his marriage during our time together. So did Greg. But with Mitch, it was his behavior. And he acknowledged that. He said, I've held her responsible. And he said, that was not fair. I drove her away. So the truth doesn't always go down easy. But if you have enough information to share with them always with their best interest in mind not to shame them not to make them feel foolish or like bad people but as an opportunity to say this is where you've been where would you like to go how is this old pattern serving you what would a new pattern look like that would serve you more effectively and build those relationships sharon the truth is a lot of people just don't have much relationship building experience
1: You're listening to God in the Ordinary with me, Sharon Tedford, and my guest, Deb Armand. That leads me into the next part of your ordinary life, Deb, and that is uh, building relationships for people who are um, struggling in their marriage or struggling with their mother-in-law or their daughters-in-law, of yes. <laughs> something that many people will be able to relate to. How do you help people understand justice and love and kindness and all the things that you talk about in the context of a marriage relationship. And of course, that also includes mothers-in-law, fathers-in-law, sisters and brothers-in-law, all of that. Talk about that for a minute because you have skills there too.
0: Well, you know, when you marry the man or the woman, you get the rest of them for free, whether you wanted them or not. And so it does all it does all um tag in ron and i have been married for 45 years we were high school sweethearts married at 19. when you're married that long you've learned a lot of stuff and a lot of it you've learned unfortunately because you did it wrong and the lord has come alongside his holy spirit has been gentle to say okay we've tried it your way can i can i share some things with you please (laughs) and so you have a little bit of i'm not sure what the word is a little bit of credentialing when you have not just survived, but your marriage has thrived for that many years. He's still my favorite human. And I can't imagine life without him. People thought we were crazy to marry at 19. But I'll tell you that one of the things that worked on our behalf, Sharon, is that we didn't have any real life experience. And so, so many things we learned, we learned together for the first time. That helps. Frankly, sometimes people have to undo some of what they learned because it was not beneficial, or it wasn't biblically based. You know, marriage was God's idea. And we've pretty much believed that if He was the inventor, then we probably ought to consult His manual. And so our secret, when people ask us, what's your secret? We always tell them, well, it's, it's easy to find. It lives between um, Genesis and Revelation. <laughs> because in any marriage that does well, God has to be the final word. God has to be the director of the traffic. And there are good days and there are bad days with that, let's face it. But at the end of the day, we always recognize that unless we're willing to wholly submit to him, we'll never submit to one another. And it's when we are willing to make that exchange with one another that our hearts really do come together. I hit the jackpot when it comes to mothers-in-law. She's a jewel. People always want to know, well, you wrote about mothers-in-law. How's your relationship? My mother-in-law has now been my mother longer than my mother because my mother, I lost my mother fairly young in my life. My 88 year old mother-in-law has been a champion for me from the beginning, encouraging me and teaching me scripture, Sharon. So, so blessed to have her in my life. But I'm also aware that as the mother of three sons, that the mother-in-law daughter-in-law relationship is often difficult and people began, to ask not just me, but to ask my three daughters-in-law, three sons who took their dad's advice and married up, way up. <laughs> and I have three lovely daughters in love, with which I was what I call them, a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead, and as different from one another as their hair color and the delight of my heart. But people would ask us, how do you all do this? You're not just friendly. You're family. How do you how do you make this work? And I really didn't think we were doing anything extraordinary except that all the girls and I share faith. And when there were issues that we needed to um, discuss, we used the word as our basis for how we would go about that. And so that first book um, was about mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law. And truthfully, either or both of the women can be the problem. And if mothers would just realize that they were never meant to be the most important woman in their son's life, it would be easier. Tell us the title of that book, Deb. That book is called Related by Chance, Family by Choice, Transforming Mother-in-Law and Daughter-in-Law Relationships. You can't sit on an airplane or run into someone without, if you tell them you're writing a book on mother-in-laws and daughters-in-law, everybody's got a story, (laughs) Sharon. So if our listeners want a copy of that, how on earth can they get it? best way is simply to go to Amazon and look under my name. That was the first book. The second book was called, um, I choose you today, 31 choices to make love last. What kinds of things do we need to purposely choose respect and honor and submission to one another? Each chapter is a short read with uh, some discussion points at the end. And the last one was fun because Ron and I wrote it together. And that was don't go to bed angry stay up and fight. Because Sharon, marriage has an enemy, particularly a Christian marriage, but it's just not your spouse. And as soon as we get that straight, the rest of it gets easier.
1: Yes, yes. Our enemy <laughs> is not our spouse. We, I no. certainly need to remember that sometimes.
0: <laughs> we all do.
1: Um, you're not a basketball coach and you're not a football coach, but you are a business coach and also a marriage coach. What's the third coaching that you do, the
0: trifecta, Deb? What is it? Oh, that third leg of The Three-Legged Stool is that I coach authors and uh, aspiring authors, those who hope to publish at some point in the future. And it's one of my greatest joys. Sharon, I love it. I benefited from a very skilled and committed coach in my own uh, progress as a writer and having the chance to come alongside those who are doing the same has been such a gift. And finally went last uh, two years ago and got my certification as a writing coach. And I've loved every bit of it. So you're basically doing exactly what you said
1: in your reading about Isaiah, that you are helping people find their voice. I am.
0: And some of them are people who would, I would classify as introverts, but they have a big message. And the idea that when this book is published, you're going to need to be willing to talk with people about it and perhaps do some speaking engagements frightens them initially, but they build steam as they write. And as they see those words come together, they recognize, God didn't just give this to me to write it down. He wants me to share it, and I'm open to doing that. So that's always fun to watch them blossom.
1: Yeah, and help them find their voice for justice and fairness, which you see often through your writing clients. Okay, Deb, we have a few minutes left, and we cannot finish this interview without talking about your grandson, Justice, who you told us about in your uh, reflection about Isaiah 61. Would you tell us, as a fairly experienced grandparent now, how do you encourage Justice and your other
0: grandchildren to have
1: courage and to speak up?
0: Well, it's interesting because we have seven grandsons and one little granddaughter. And the little granddaughter is very verbal and practices it in ways that sometimes get her in trouble. Uh, She can be (laughs) sassy and she can be the one who's emotional. And it's about calming her down and reminding her, if you need something, if something's bothering you, let's talk about it. Use your words is is something that every one of my grandchildren (laughs) has heard me say. Because candidly, the crying and the screaming never will move them forward. And it pushes most of the adults in their life further away from wanting to help. And so just like with God, when we go to Him with a complaint and we're pitching a verbal fit or even just letting it happen inside of our head, He's not able to grab our attention. And I think I've probably heard God say to me, use your words, Deb, um, on occasion when I've just been ruminating or mulling on something that's, that's upsetting. We also love to read to them. My older three all read at this point. And we buy them books that will help lead them to Jesus and develop character in Christ. And I will tell you that truth-telling in this household and in those of my sons and their families is at the top of the list. There are a lot of things that can be upsetting in a child's behavior, but when there is an untruth, we call that a lie in my house, uh, there is typically the most... um, I don't want to say severe, but the most important correction that comes along with that. We want them to love the truth. Jesus does. God loves justice. If they can get that one right, they're going to be okay.
1: You said just now that it's okay to come to God and, to quote your grandma phrase, use your words. Yes. Do you think it's true that God allows us to come to Him with however we feel, or do we need to temper? our words, and our thoughts, and our anger when we share with God?
0: Well, I think he might prefer it that way sometimes, but I have to believe <laughs> that he hears us and he meets us where we are. It's often his voice, his his words, his sometimes just the awareness of his presence that calms some of that stuff down. And I think he'd rather have us come to him in those moments than talk to someone else, than pitch a fit with someone else, or just be in in a bad or selfish mood. And so I believe that no matter how we present at the moment, He's always glad to see us. And if we'll stop talking for a few moments and listen, we'll immediately almost feel a soothing in our spirit from His Spirit.
1: That's helpful advice. Thanks, Deb. So it's been really great to have you here with us
0: today on God in the Ordinary. If people want to connect with you, how can they do that? Best way is uh, at my website, and that is debdermond.com, D-E-B-D-E-A-R-M-O-N-D.com. We uh, are called Family Matters, and we touch everything from grandparenting to marriage to children, all of of the things that are part of the family. And, And our goal is to always help bridge the gap where we believe it matters the most in the family. Deb, your ordinary touches on very different
1: areas of life, but thank you for sharing with us how God meets you and teaches you and reaches through you in your ordinary. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to God in the Ordinary, presented by me, Sharon Tedford. My guest today was award-winning author, executive coach and facilitator, Deb DiArmond. You can find out more about Deb on her website, debdarmond.com.
0: The producer is Gary Dell, and this is a Wise Word Radio 61 Things co-production. Go to 61-things.com to tell us how you reveal God in the Ordinary.